Today, I'm, we're closing our, our series on Joseph. And I'm reading a book right now called Falling Upward by a Catholic priest named Richard Rohr. He's kind of a Catholic mystic. And uh, some of the stuff I use today is coming from that book, so I want to give him credit. Um, we are in the season of Easter tide on the church calendar. And Easter is joy, and it's out of this season of life conquering death that we have that we're going back and have gone back to study the longest narrative in the entire Bible, and that's the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis. So we've waded back into the book of Genesis. We've looked at Joseph in particular, and we're trying to view it with the lens of the cross because this is an Old Testament story. Jesus has not appeared on the scene, so the the ethics and the teachings and the li- and, and the vibe of Jesus is not in there. But there are parts of it where we see the foreshadowing of a Christian kingdom, of of the attributes of Christ. And so we're grabbing a hold of the ones we see, we're we're poking holes in the ones where there there are some imperfections. So, for example, two weeks ago we talked about Joseph was a dreamer. All right, he was a man that had these vivid dreams. One could argue they were prideful dreams built off the privilege that he had of being the favored son. And then he was a man of broken dreams. A lot of these dreams came crashing down. Parts of these dreams were true, but he was also a conflicted forgiver, and that's what we talked about last week. He's, his brothers sold him into Egyptian slavery. Years later, their paths crossed again, and this time he had the upper hand in the circumstances. And we see Joseph go one moment he's loving and forgiving towards his brothers, and the other he's spiteful and, and uh, have, has vengeance on his mind. He plays games, he manipulates, he goes back to forgiving and loving Then he goes back to playing war games. He goes back and forth, almost like a Jekyll and Hyde type of experience. And if any of you have been harmed by someone and had to forgive, you probably can relate to that. Like one day you feel like forgiving, maybe for the next week you don't, and then another week you feel like forgiving, and it just kind of goes back and forth. But ultimately we do see Joseph completely forgive his brothers, and that's where we kind of pick up the story today is the forgiveness has taken place. He has revealed his identity to them. They didn't recognize him in all these interactions. And what we see today is that God has worked through Joseph's life to lay out a pathway for Joseph's family, his father Jacob and their and all of their family, all of his brothers and their and their wives and their kids to enter into the kingdom of Egypt because there was a great famine in Israel. And it's through this pathway that the bloodline was preserved and generations later Jesus Christ would spring out of this bloodline. So we pick up in Genesis 45. um, The story of this pathway that God lays out is like six chapters long. We're not going to read all six chapters in the book of Genesis. And Genesis chapters are really long. So we're just going to read a few verses in Genesis 45, verses 17 through 20. Pharaoh said to Joseph, tell your brothers, this is what you must do. Load your pack animals and hurry back to the land of Canaan. Then get your father and all of your families and return here to me. I will give you the very best land in Egypt, and you will eat from the best that the land produces. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, tell your brothers, take wagons from the land of Egypt to carry your little children and your wives or bring your father here. Don't worry about your personal belongings, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. So this is the promise that that Joseph's leverage has led to, this pathway for his entire family to be now, not only safe in this new kingdom of Egypt, but also to be completely provided for. And so over the next five chapters, 
we see Joseph's father, Jacob, and all their family make their way to Egypt, walking and traveling a blessed pathway that God provided. The, the foreshadowing is palpable, all right? Um, God would provide a pathway to his kingdom later through Jesus Christ. And so this story just kind of gives a little snippet of what God plans to do thousands of years later. So again, this is an Old Testament story. It's not complete. Without Christ, the pathway is flawed, but there are powerful moments of timeless truth, and there's snippets of what I would call a gospel pathway, meaning there are traits or markers that are in Joseph's story that we also see in Jesus' story. And as this path, and, and it's through this pathway that we are invited to travel and into a deeper and um, intimate presence of God. So a couple of months ago, my brother and sister-in-law had their first child together, and his name's Maddox. Uh, he was born at 26 weeks, extremely premature, like right at, right at the line of survivability. Uh, unfortunately, because he was so pre premature, he's had a lot of health struggles along the way. You can see a picture of, I think one picture is of my brother's hand next to him after he was born. And, um, you know, the doctors have done some amazing stuff and nursing Maddox to health, medicine, technology, breathing assistance, like a hyper sterile environment. Like only my brother and sister-in-law and the grandparents are allowed even into the area where these premature babies are, are being nursed back to health. Um, another part of their survival is having as much skin-to-skin -skin contact with mom and dad as possible because there's nothing like skin-to-skin -skin contact for a baby. Uh, feeling that makes an incredible, um, it's a biological phenomenon. So the tie-in to Christ's kingdom is you can love God and you can, you can even love him from a distance. You can offer up prayers, you can read scripture, you can feel his presence, you can be active in a church community, you can serve others, but there's nothing like the type of intimacy that God wants to have as he tr leads you deeper into his kingdom. It's kind of like the skin-to-skin -skin contact of the spiritual world. That's what he's inviting us into. That's the gospel pathway. So I used to go camping a lot. I'm now what you would call indoorsy. Uh, I don't, s at some point in my, in the recent five to s last, last five to seven years, I realized that sleeping outside in the ground in a bag just doesn't sound that appealing to me. And so now I, I still enjoy the outdoors, but I always make sure there's a cabin with air conditioning and no bugs in it and, that, that I, and, and a bed to sleep in. I know. But when I was in high school and college, every summer, me and my friends would camp almost every weekend. And we had a spot that we found in our local town. It was behind one of my friend's houses. You had to walk through a gigantic cornfield to get to it. And in the middle of a cornfield, there was like a, an area of woods. And in the middle of this woods, we had created like a permanent campsite. And it was no one could find it except for like the seven or eight of us. It was impossible to find, which when you're in high school and college, it's kind of the point. Like you don't want to be found. Um, I worked weekend nights. So I wasn't able to make my way out to the campsite until around 1130 at night, midnight. And when I'd get there, I mean, it's pitch black out in the middle of the country. And, you know, being an irresponsible, like, 19, 20-year-old, I rarely remember to bring any, like, a flashlight. So I had to make that walk in the dark through hundreds of yards of cornfield. And it, it wasn't a straight path. It was a winding path through this corn that we had created. And then find the edge of the woods, make my way through the woods, all in the dark. 
And if you ever have you ever if you've never walked through a cornfield at night alone, it's a terrifying experience. All right, you feel like you're going to get murdered at every step of the way, especially when you don't have a flashlight. But what I learned to do was I f- I would find comfort in the little turns on the trail. Like okay, there's the first turn, and I would like it. W- the more like markers I found on the trail that would show me the way that I remembered because I'd walked this trail so many times. Like I'd get to this turn in the cornfield. And then I would get to the beginning of the woods, and then I would start hearing my friends' voices, and then I would see at last the flicker of the campfire. And I was like, oh, these markers on the journey kind of got me mentally through this walk through the cornfield, and I don't camp anymore. And uh, it's similar with the gospel pathway. There are markers that we can identify that will get us through the journey and into the next section or deeper into the next part of the kingdom in scripture specifically the life of christ and those following him they give us some of these markers and elements of joseph's pathway give us some of these markers to follow the the problems to identifying them are numerous though it's like walking through a cornfield in the pitch black all right we're reading ancient eastern culture thousands of years old and we are modernized westerners that alone there's a whole lot more to that but that alone makes it really difficult to identify the markers that God was laying out in the life of Joseph or the markers that God was showing us through the life of Christ or through the life of the early church. So as we identify these markers, we not, we not only have to understand the context of Scripture, we have to be willing to shed all of these modernized Western habits that are ingrained in us. We have to be willing to drop these in order to understand God and move deeper into his kingdom And this is the pathway that leads to healing and restoration and life change that comes with the nearness and the presence of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So, although it's not possible, I'm going to try to sum up some of these major markers or steps that we see on the gospel pathway. And the very first sign on this pathway, and I kind of knew this, but thinking about it some more, I'm like, you start thinking about the words of Jesus, and you're like, whoa, you must leave home the familiar, the comfort of the known. The gospel call is to leave home, family, and nets. And I'm not talking metaphorically, because we can, we, can, we could cop out to that. Oh, it's symbolic. It's a physical, mental, and emotional journey away from family. Jesus, now just think about the words of Jesus here. Jesus says stuff like, leave your father and mother, drop your nets, Sell all your possessions. Let someone else bury your father. If someone said that to you, how would you respond to that? Whoever loses his or her life for me will find it. These are the words of Christ that I'm quoting. Many encounters with Christ in the New Testament, he was telling a person they need to leave someone, someplace, or some comfort behind. The gospel pathway requires you to leave family, career plans, cultural and familial traditions all behind christ isn't like first aid he doesn't exist just to slap band-aids on your current life plans he's calling us into a completely different understanding of being human and this first step on the pathway is let's be honest it's downright offensive all right it's not just to you but to others because uh you can expect disbelief and doubt and downright hostility from others even from professing christians when you start walking the gospel pathway um but no joke it will lead you deeper into a 
into the kingdom a more satisfying understanding of what it means to be human and to be God's son or daughter. And even when moments when I don't actually, I'm not sure if I believe that, I have faith. I, that, those are the moments I'm like, I have, to, I have to have faith. I have to hope that this is true. And Carrie and I could speak to this first step on the pathway because we've done it and we've continued to do it for 14 years. We left our home, our family, our career aspirations. I give credit to Carrie because she saw the first step on the gospel pathway and she said, we need to take this. She was the first one to say, we got to leave. And I'm like, what? So now once you take that first step on the pathway and you begin to drink from the waters of this pathway, there's really, there's really no going back. So you have to ask yourself, what do I need to leave? If Jesus were to, if I were to encounter Christ, what incredibly offensive words would he say to me? I'd like to tell you that the first step is the hardest. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> it gets harder. The pathway is revealed through suffering. So whether it's Joseph being sold into Egyptian slavery, wrong, wrongfully accused of a crime, and thrown into Egyptian prison, or if it's Jesus' pathway of torture and persecution and execution, the gospel pathway is revealed through suffering. So I'm going to repeat this. It's not necessarily revealed before you suffer. It's revealed through the suffering. That's a big difference. Catholic priest Richard Rohr describes it this way. He says, sooner or later, if you're on any spiritual path, some event, person, death, idea, or relationship will enter your life that, and you simply cannot deal with it using your present skill set, your acquired knowledge, or your strong willpower. Spiritually speaking, you will be, you must be, led to the edge of your own private resources. You will lose at something. This is the only way. Let go of your egocentric preoccupations and go on the further and larger journey. I wish I could say this is not true, but it is darn near absolute. Failure and humiliation force you to look where you never would otherwise. He, uh, to paraphrase him, he says, most Western people are spiritually lazy. Such a down and an up pathway doesn't fit into our Western obsession with progress. All right, when you are in the first half of life, it's, it's hard to see any kind of failing or dying as possible, much less necessary or good. Those who have never gone up, like the poor or marginalized, may actually have a spiritual head start, according to Jesus. Those who have gone down are the only ones who understand up. And you won't know for sure that this message is true until you are on the up. All right, as you are dying to the old way, you will doubt or despair that there is no up. And it's seasons like Eastertide that are designed to give us the hope that there is an up, there is a life after death. This is what we cling to in a resurrection life. Another marker on the pathway is you need or you will have a guide. We don't see this in Joseph's story. It's one of the flaws. Um, Christ hasn't come yet. But this is something Jesus reveals through the New Testament. He says where two or three are gathered, he is there. He sends the Holy Spirit to be with us always. He sends his disciples out in pairs. We see this guide, communal faith everywhere in Scripture. You need someone with you and ahead of you on the journey. And you need someone walking with you on the way down as you experience loss. And you need someone who leads you and mentors you to the way up. This is uh, a common theme we see in the New Testament. Um, 
there, I had an occurrence like this years ago, I don't know, four, five years ago or so. I was in a, at a gas station in Ohio, and I was walking up to pay for the gas or get a bottle of water or something, and I saw this man standing in front of the doors to the gas station, and he was just staring at me as I walked from my pump. His eyes never left me, and at first I was cynical, and I'm like, he's going to ask me for money. Um, and he walked up to me. I'm like, here we go. And I, he goes, um, I don't remember what he said at first now. It's parent brain. Once you start having kids, you start your memory starts to go, and you can't remember stuff as easily. But I remember at some point in the conversation, I realized this was not a chance encounter. And he said, I feel like God has told me to tell you something, and he's, he just wants you to keep going and to not quit. And I can't tell you how many times, like, I've thought of those words over the last five years. They haunt me in a really good way. We need people. It may be a chance encounter with someone who says something that you're like, whoa, you feel it. You feel the weight of it in the moment, and it doesn't go away. Or it could be a person who just walks with you, who, who, who you know, whether it's the down or the up, there's a guide. There's a communal part of our faith that God is giving us on this gospel pathway. What does the pathway look like once you get far enough down that you can look back? All right, like when you start to look back and notice how far you've traveled into the presence of Christ, what can you expect? So for this, I can't speak much to that. All right, I, I, I have to find a guide, someone further ahead of me who can provide some promise and some encouragement. We have Jesus Christ, People like Paul in Scripture who reveal what to expect on this pathway. There are also other saints and guides who have recorded their journeys throughout the years. And recently, uh, you know, reading this book, I was struck by Richard Rohr's insight. He's 70 years old. Um, he spent a lot of his life walking with uh, the marginalized and the broken. And his words carry a lot of weight when you read them. You can just feel the wisdom. It's like, whoa, he's lived this. So... I, I just want to close today with some of his thoughts because there's so much here. There's so much depth. Some of this stuff, we may hear it or read it and be like, I'm not sure what that means yet. But what I get the feeling is it's someone who has walked so far down the pathway that he can now look back. And for those of us who are behind and coming towards him and towards Jesus, he can say, look out for that. Watch that. Expect this. Expect that. And I feel like when I read this, that's what it was like. So he wrote, in the second half of life, one has less and less need or interest in eliminating the negative or fearful, making again those old rash judgments, holding on to old hurts, or feeling any need to punish other people. Your superiority complexes have gradually departed in all directions. You do not fight these things anymore. They have just shown themselves too many times to be useless, ego-based, counterproductive, and often entirely wrong. You learn to positively ignore and withdraw your energy from evil or stupid things rather than fight them directly. You fight things only when you are directly called and equipped to do so. You have learned ever so slowly and with much resistance that most frontal attacks on evil just produce another kind of evil in yourself. Daily life now requires prayer and discernment more than knee-jerk responses toward either the conservative or liberal end of the spectrum. Law is still necessary, but it is not your guiding star or even close. 
it's been wrong and cruel too many times. You don't talk as much or as loud. You no longer need to change or adjust other people to be happy yourself. Ironically, you are now in a position to change people, but you do not need to, and that makes all the difference. You do what you are called to do, and you let go of the consequences. Your life and your delivery system are now one, whereas before your life and your occupation seemed like two different things. You don't need to have what you love, but you have learned to love what you have. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing one more song together.